I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Bruce Ross. And Pete, get ready to start track. Hello. Hey, team. Um, so we're here on the again inaugural episode. Well, it's not our inaugural. This is like this is like the the where no man has gone before to the cage episode we recorded last week that everyone heard. You don't get that, Peter. You'll you'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> but that's been that's a very funny joke to most people who are probably listening to this right now. And then actually, weirdly, our first episode that will air will be next week. So it'll kind of be like a man trap situation. Again, these are funny, <laughs> funny jokes to people that understand what I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, no, but thank I'm you so much. over here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. When I give you some reference material to read, Peter, you... <laughs> Are gonna you know, both of your sides are gonna be split? I think is fair to say. Uh, but yeah, we are. <laughs> I'll try to avoid as many uh, Star Trek jokes as possible. But thank you so much to our, uh, for joining us on our uh, r- real first episode of Star Trek, where we're actually covering something. So, a quick recap of what this show is, or what we hope this show to be, because this is really the first episode. Uh, we are uh, the hosts, Peter Moran and myself, Aaron Armstrong. We are the hosts of We Love to Watch. Uh, a movie podcast, and what we are covering here today is I found out that Peter Moran had never seen a Star Trek movie, as we found out last week, had barely seen a Star Trek thing. And so we are going to go through all 13 Star Trek movies, uh, as well as some contextual episodes to kind of hopefully color his experience in a way that uh, he understands what the fuck is going on, who these people are, uh, that sort of thing. So we're going to try to do an episode before each movie. We did three episodes as a base before this one that we'll talk about a little bit later. And then uh, the same thing when we get into the Next Generation movies, three episodes and an episode for a base uh, for each one as well. So that is the premise of the show. Today we're talking about Star Trek, the motion picture, and the three episodes that uh, Peter watched, which were Devil in the Dark, Amok Time, and City on the Edge of Forever. I'll get into a little later while those were the three I picked. I'm sure that e- literally everyone listening has a, another three episodes that they could have uh, given you, Peter, to watch. Because uh, this may shock you, but Star Trek fans have very stringent opinions sometimes on things uh, but <laughs> but uh, but you you picked them because you know me the best i mean you have good reasons for picking them but you picked them because you know me the best you know me better than anybody it doesn't matter how much uh i, I know you better than anybody well not really you know my <laughs> okay. tastes better than most people on earth <laughs> there you go uh well i also tried to i think star trek can really be divided into three archetypes for episodes and i think those three really highlight certain components. We'll talk about that in a sec. 
Before we do, we are pleased to be joined by not only our first guest on this podcast, but a guest who uh, we've known for a long time through uh, through the Dissolve uh, website and the Dissolve Facebook group, but we have not yet coordinated as a guest on any of our other podcasts, so we are very excited to have him on. Bruce Ross, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, for, if anybody's wondering who the hell I am in terms of the Dissolve realm, uh, I went by the handle Glorbs for a very long time. So I'm Glorbs. Um, <laughs> and really excited to be on here to talk about Star Trek. I'm a big Star Trek fan, and this is a great opportunity to sort of delve into it. So, Yeah. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, now, everyone last week heard uh, our history with Star Trek, but before we get going, Bruce... Why don't you tell us a little bit about your Star Trek experience throughout your life? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Um, so picture it. Nova Scotia, 1989, 1990. Um, I started watching the uh, the Next Generation. I was actually on those those really, really overpriced VHS tapes that a buddy of mine, oh, yep. uh, his father- One episode. Them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like $20 yeah, for oh. one episode. Um, back in- 1989. And uh, and so I watched Encounter at Farpoint. And this was the first Star Trek I'd ever seen. Of course, this is the uh, the two-part pilot episode of next of The Next Generation, which, of course, Peter, you're probably going to get to eventually. Um, and I was, I was hooked. I started getting into it. I distinctly remember, actually, um, making the Enterprise out of a shreddy cereal box. Um, just it was a very two-dimensional, flat kind of thing. And I drew all the panels on it and stuff. And that was my that was my first enterprise build building project, and uh, of course after that they started heavily syndicating the Next Generation, yeah. which is how I started watching it, and uh, and then the original series they aired that on CBC on Sunday afternoons I believe, and I started watching that, and uh, and then around ninety or ninety one uh, they released a box set of the five original series films. Yep. Uh, this would have been the same season that, or sorry, this, the same year that Star Trek VI was being released in theaters. And of course, the, the box set, when all the five tapes were together, formed a picture of the Enterprise from the from the, the films. And then the sixth one, they just made it some stars, so it would still fit. Yeah, in. yeah. It's like, or like on the other side, it was kind of the nebula, you know, a continuation yeah, of the nebula. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, this, I remember on Christmas Day of '91, um, my brother, who was uh, one of my brothers, who was uh, who was a big Star Trek fan when in the '70s, um, he he and I watched all five of the movies in, in, in on Christmas Day. So that was kind of the you know my my <laughs> trial by fire I guess for for watching the films and uh, I went ending on a high note too oh sure yeah and, and I and I went to see Star Trek six in the theater because it was around yeah. that time right so that yeah. that was kind of like my that was like my intense sort of growth period I guess and then shortly after that because I was not the most popular um, person in late junior high or high school. I was totally into to nerdy stuff, and I started collecting the Playmates action figures. And I had pretty much all of them. I had some of the the, the, the role playing items and and all the action figures. And of course, they're butt ugly. They're hide they were hideous figures, yeah. but they, they they had every character, every character they released. 
Well, and every like permutation of character. Oh, sure, yeah, too. Yeah, it's like oh, this is Picard from the one episode where he. When he's like dressed up in Times Arrow or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, no, and and that's that's kind of where that, that yeah they they had like tons of um, tons of variants of all the different characters, and then so by that's so wrong because Picard is such a Patrick Stewart is such a, a handsome beautiful man like to to not honor him with a, a handsome figure is just morally wrong i think but they've got better i mean you know and and <laughs> better yeah frankly. and of course like the 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 more recent stuff that's come out it's like oh, it just looks like a shrunken down version of them um <laughs> and uh yeah so but but it's funny because i watched deep space nine but very much as uh, as you were saying aaron when we were leading into the series I and mean, into this episode i kind of started losing interest around voyager and uh, and so I watched a little bit of Voyager, probably for the first couple of seasons, but I don't remember any of it. I just I just sort of yeah. stopped. And uh, I remember going to see Nemesis in the theater and thinking, I think I'm done with Star Trek for a bit. <laughs> yeah. So what did you what did you think of the remakes or the re- reboots reshuffle? I liked the J.J. Abrams one, the first one. Um, yeah. I thought it was fine. Like it was, it's you know very slick blockbuster um, kind of spin on the material. But I mean, that's I knew it wasn't going to be like the original series. I, w- I knew it wasn't going yeah. to sort of have that that kind of high minded thing. But I don't know. It was it was a, it was a slick piece of entertainment and. Uh, I wasn't crazy about Into Darkness, like most people, and uh, Beyond was okay, but, you know, I'm just, it was fine. I'm always just curious, because I know, uh, I feel like the reaction from fans really varies, and it is funny hearing this, because from what I can tell, Peter, and you can back me up from what we talked about last week, that Bruce has not heard yet, it sounds like Bruce is a Canadian version of me, specifically <laughs> related to my history with Star Trek. Um, yeah, it's everything like, I just from- feel like it was reflected. <laughs> Uh, everything from like uh, the original series being uh, syndicated on Sundays. Uh, I know North Dakota and Canada are kind of close. Uh, no, <laughs> no so. that's not true. People in North Dakota are assholes. Canadians are nice. No, not every Canadian yeah. is nice. Trust me. I know that's the perception, <laughs> but are they Amer- are they uh, American immigrants? <laughs> Well, no, no, no. You need to from stop getting all of your perception of North Dakota from the overnighters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm sure it's a beautiful land. Also from no, it's a hellhole. <laughs> yeah, also from Badlands by Terrence Malick. Yeah, uh, I think that was two. South Dakota. Oh, so, so <laughs> both the Dakotas are full of assholes. Oh Got yeah, it. the worst. Most, to be honest, most of like the the Midwest, a lot of assholes. Um, yeah, I'd be worried um, about offending them, but uh, I think you're our only Dakotan yeah. listener. Yeah, I hope so. I don't yeah, want the rest of you listening. If uh, you're from the Dakota, keep digging for oil, assholes. And you're offended by this, I will send you a personal apology in the mail. How's that? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so thank you so much. I, I'm very excited for your take on this in our inaugural episode here. Uh, before we get into the movie proper, uh, so I. Especially last week, realizing that Peter had not seen any Star Trek, as we will discuss, this movie would be the worst possible introduction to uh, the Star Trek cast because it is really taking advantage of the fact that there's a 12-year gap from the series that was canceled after three seasons and became a cult favorite uh, onto Star Trek conventions to the movie reuniting everyone. And um, 
I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't work for Peter, but I imagine being extra flummoxed by it if, uh, if you had never even seen like their day to day interactions at their nine to five job. One thing also we discovered last week about Peter is that he saw Star Trek as primarily a moral play, uh, a la Twilight Zone. Interesting. Well, I think that's somewhat accurate. I think there's that you can kind of sum up most original series episodes into three categories. And I get trying to put them into three categories. They had a lot of different concepts. But I think ultimately, if you're really trying to break them down, they fall into one of three categories. And that is the kind of morality play, teach a lesson episodes. I think those absolutely exist in Star Trek. A lot of TV at the time, I think a lot of times Star Trek did it really well, being able to use kind of its uh, sci-fi setting as a way to comment on uh, issues or address topics that uh, may not have always gotten addressed well uh, in TV, especially in the 60s. Um, so for that one, I chose Devil in the Dark, which is about finding kind of a uh, rock monster uh, in the middle of... Monster. <laughs> no, sorry, I was going to say it's more of a carpet pizza, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it does look like a carpet pizza uh there's definitely with some guy crawling around like with his butt in the air like a worm uh underneath that underneath that blanket uh but uh that that's kind of the okay hey just because someone doesn't look like you they could be a living thing that you should that has thoughts and feelings and wants and desires kind of an environmental message in there as well so i think that one really is the morality play example uh, I chose Amok Time because I think one of the other important parts about Star Trek, especially the original series, uh, was the relationship between McCoy, Kirk, and Spock. Uh, and I think that uh, besides being kind of considered a classic episode, uh, highlights the the way that their relationship works really well. And then uh, I think the other the other category is just like solid sci-fi concepts. That this was definitely the area of Star Star Trek I was especially interested in when I discovered it in elementary school and junior high, where you know the time travel stuff, the let's enter a wormhole, the parallel universe, all that kind of taking sci-fi concepts and making good stories around them with characters that you know I really liked. And so for that one, I chose City on the Edge of Forever, which is also many times will top the list of best Star Trek episodes of all time, uh, written by Harlan Ellison and just a really well done concept of going back and uh, changing the past, and I th- and I think it's a it's morally complex as well. It's about doing the good thing to change the past that actually results in the bad thing. So uh, those are the three episodes I chose, uh, Bruce. I'm assuming you've seen all three of these. Any any thoughts or takes? Anything based on those three categories? I I could have subbed in as well that you think would be a good introduction. To someone watching Star Trek for the first time, uh, honestly, I mean they're all they're all great episodes. I think um, it's interesting that the, the ratio usually is is pretty reflective of the quality of the series too, because you picked two first season episodes and one second season episode, and then no third season episodes. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is I don't know that's that's pretty that's a pretty good sampling. Um, Honestly, I think you could do you could do a lot worse than than picking those three. And I also think that a mock time has a particularly interesting uh, sort of feeder into the motion picture because it it's sort of it's two two depictions of Vulcan and Vulcan culture. Yep. Um, so I I totally see that. Um, and in terms of morality plays, sure. I mean, one of one of my one of the episodes that I always sort of go to bat for is is a taste of Armageddon, and that's sort of a morality play type episode. But the yeah. Devil in the Dark is 
it's so it's kind of an iconic episode and it has a lot of uh, it has a lot of great character moments especially for um, especially for Spock uh, but of course you know there's a lot of great character moments for Spock one thing that actually kind of struck me watching this time is that I kind of because I've I've had I haven't seen it since again I was renting single episode VHSs back um back when I was in junior high to try to watch as many Star Trek uh, original series episodes that I could. Um, and one thing that struck me is that it, I think it really does break from, and I think this is true of Star Trek as a whole. It breaks from the kind of, Hey, our heroes are the good guy. They figure out that this is just a creature who is being harmed when they let the people who have been killing this creature's babies know what's going on in, in most versions the miners would have reacted violently or angry or not cared and kirk and spock and the rest of the enterprise team would have had to either stop them or you know join forces with the with the rock monster and the fact that the second that the miners who are like about to riot are confronted with the fact that this is a intelligent being who's trying to protect its kids they express remorse uh, and saying, well, we just didn't know and agree to work with the monster to kind of make a more peaceful society. And I think in a way that is really Star Trek in microcosm. Absolutely. This idea of in general, good people who sometimes do the wrong thing, but ultimately have the same sense of morality uh, and the same sense of uh, concern about fellow living beings, regardless if you're a starship captain or a miner on a planet. And uh, that really struck me this time. And, you know, I think I'm really excited to do this because a lot of it will be watching for uh, some components for the first time in, in years. But also, like, the real core of Star Trek, which sometimes does get lost in the J.J. Abrams version, is this idea of a better society. And yeah. Devil in the Dark is a really good example of what what the society that Broddenberry envisioned that um, that has kind of uh, ca- the, is the reason why Star Trek endures for as long as it has. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I do want to say that with City on the Edge of Forever, uh, that particular episode, I think, should I mean that's always going to be in everybody's best of list because, to be perfectly honest, that ep- that's one of my favorite episodes of of any TV show ever. And the reason why is simply because every single time I I see it, I have the exact same emotional reaction to the ending, and it's yeah. it's, it's it's a real gut punch. And it doesn't matter how many times I see it, uh, it's. It's like it's a it's got a clumsy start to an uh, for the episode because yeah. they, they did they did some really really <laughs> oh shitty no, rewrites to too it. Too much antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> like you know the ship shakes and all of a sudden he's crazy. Like it's just yeah. it's stupid. But but the 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 end <laughs> the ending itself it's it's so it's so solid. It's 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 so and it's so compact and it it really sort of shows character uh, like Kirk as a character and and his response to to meeting Edith Keeler and like like he's got this this love and this 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 depth to 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 him that normally Kirk is not really attributed to his prop yeah. the popular perception of the character is so negative, but for the most part. I think if you actually watch through the series, that's not the Kirk that you walk away with. Um, yeah. And like I always kind of go to City on the Edge of Forever. It's like he's he's met this remarkable person. He's it's like I I think I love this person, and then it's like but 
well, too bad. A cruel twist of fate, and you have to do this awful thing. And yeah. and it's I don't know. It gets me every time. Yeah, and I'm the last thing I'll say, and I'm very excited to hear Peter's reaction as we kind of set up our history with these episodes. Is that the other thing that really struck me about sitting on the edge of forever? That and I I've probably seen this episode ten, fifteen times, but it's been a while. And there's that part where I guess I was almost expecting when they start talking about Edith Keeler. Uh, joining a peace movie that delays the entrance to World War II for there to be some sort of criticism from Kirk or Spock. Like, oh, didn't they know that that wasn't the time to peace and stuff like that? And I don't know why I was expecting that. I guess it's just so normal in pop culture today for even people that have good intentions to go, oh, you misguided fool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't happen. Kirk is like, well, she was right. And, you know, Spock has to go, she was right. It's just the world wasn't ready for it right now. So, you know, that was that was surprising um, and affecting as well. So, Peter, sure. I'm um, again, both of us are obviously bringing a lot of history to this. What was what was your experience watching these as, as really as far as I understand the first episodes you'd ever seen? <clears throat> like I said, I've seen the newest movies, the reboots, uh, not generally fond of them. Into Darkness is one of the worst things I've ever seen. I have not seen, and I, I probably have seen like a few things from Next Generation and some of the, the like some of one of the Next Generation movies, but I haven't seen an, a fucking single episode of the original series, which is amazing. Uh, some of my my preconceptions were true. Uh, I liked the Twilight Zone style sort of morality tales. Uh, it's funny that you picked Devil in the Dark for that reason because City on the Edge of Forever. It really struck me as a Twilight Zone episode. Like, I think that with some slight reframing, especially the beginning section that uh, Bruce calls out and is, like, really terrible. Like, especially, like, McCoy is a character I connected with immediately on the show. Like, I fucking love McCoy. He's my favorite character of all, the, all of them in these first three episodes in the movie um, that has gotten highlighted. And... To have him just become, like, reduced to this, like, crazy person in, like, this, like three seconds just felt like a waste. And he, we don't get real McCoy back till like, the end of the episode. Uh, I had some other preconceptions that I, I didn't really think about. Like, I forgot that they would have, like, a monster episode, which is what Devil in the Dark is to me. Like, let's go, uh, you know, let's go to this planet and see what the hell's going on. And they discover, yeah, this strange beast. And then it doesn't end with them finding a way to kill the strange beast was so refreshing to me. Uh, and so humanist. And so, I mean, I guess it's not humanist technically, but uh, it, it is so idealistic. Beingist. Yeah, yeah. Personist. Uh, it, it's so idealistic and it has such a, um, a positivity to it that I did not expect as much right i know star wars is known for like the good versus evil dichotomy and star trek had something more um intellectual in mind but i didn't expect something so positive out of that i expected something more like hey here's a weird moral quandary uh i don't know you fucking deal with it which is kind of what city on the edge of forever is the fact that all these characters are just trying to do good 
and have good hearts, even if they need a little bit of redirection, was really and refreshing. There's a lot of episodes too that uh, that express that type of ethic. I mean, when I like went with the discussion of De- Devil in the Dark, I keep on wanting to say Dancer in the Dark. It's like no, it's not Dancer in the Dark. <laughs> but uh, but that, but that has a very much much darker ending than Devil yes, in the Dark. Yes, yeah, yes. But uh, but with like the Corbomite maneuver, or with um, uh, there's oh, the one with the Gorn. Arena, yeah. arena, like like there are other episodes. There's quite a few episodes of Star Trek that really sort of talk about. Well, here's the monster, or here's the creature, or the alien threat, and it's like the first thing that you think is like, okay, well, this is going to be this conflict between these, you know, this good guy and this and and the good guys and and the the the, the villain of the week, but. More than often than not, it's like there's there's this effort to to find a peaceful solution or to make a choice at a crucial moment to sort of be to find a, another way around the problem, and that's that's a very defining element of a lot of a lot of original series Star Trek. They yeah, and, and, kill the monster like uh, I don't know twenty minutes from the end of the episode, and then they spend the last twenty minutes trying to find trying a to way fi- to not kill the monster. To fix the monster. Yeah. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And I'll be honest too, like in my experience, and maybe this would have been true for you, Peter, maybe it's true for you, Bruce. Like some of these like that that those Star Trek episodes weren't always my favorite as a kid because I did want more action. Um and I did want uh you know stuff like Darmuk from Next Generation is a really good example of a of of that kind of episode in in the next series, and I was like, well, sometimes I like when the, they fight the big bad monster, and they have examples of that, but as I've grown up, and by the time I revisited a lot of stuff when uh, the series was getting released on DVD, I found myself more attracted to the uh, peaceful coexistence and trying to figure out a way to stop suffering as opposed to inflicting it. If this show and the movie are indicative of how action scenes will be going in the show, uh, very happy that they usually find a way around them. Uh, <laughs> Peter, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this. Because <laughs> yeah, because like it, it's not a show to me about good action scenes. That's what Star Wars was doing, and yeah, the zillion movies that copied Star Wars were, are going to be doing, including apparently the Star Trek reboot. Um, we'll get to that much, much later. I was very surprised by that in a good way. And especially, yeah, coming to it as an older person, that's like, I don't need to see you blow up this rubber monster dude. Like, I got that. I've got that in a million other things. Um, Then the fact that my favorite movie is The Thing, which is entirely about destroying this weird alien beast, right? Like, (laughs) I've got I've got that those stories already. The other thing that really surprised me about the show is that I'm used to old William Shatner, um, goofy, self, yeah. self-aggrandizing, but also self-deprecating William Shan- Shatner. So William Shatner on the original show uh, was, uh, what's the word for it? A uh, fucking babe. Like, yeah. He is so fucking hot. <laughs> he's, he's Look, so I'm very hot. happy you were able to discover this, Peter. He's because so fucking hot. He starts the season hot, and then as they as each year progresses, it's like well, he's you know I think I think that girdle <laughs> might be overworked a little bit, but well, he it was seemed, uh, it seemed to he be was like what 35, I think, when like he uh, you know he wasn't. It's not nowadays where like oh, new lead in your show is 22, like. 
you know, he's 35. He's already, you know, middle age, probably based on the life expectancy at the time. He's yeah. got to he's got to work hard. You know, he has to work hard to keep on top of it. So. <laughs> well, and the other thing, though, Bruce, you mentioned this really well. It's like there's so we're this not idea. Talk about how he is? Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, we, no. Well, I I think this part's important though about like how I think a lot of the perception of Kirk as a character has been influenced by Shatner's public persona. And oh, I think, yeah. Oh, and yeah. I, and I think he is really, really good in the series that, like, Bruce talked about as, like, having, like, some depth of character and some, um, you know, concern and some intelligence. And he's 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 not as overacty as he sometimes gets portrayed as, especially in the original series. And we're going to talk about this as kind of starting with the motion picture. But his, his character arc in the seven movies that he's in, I think he does so – well, there are moments of Shatner overacting. Uh, Star Trek V would be a very good example of that, where he was directed by none other than William Shatner, <laughs> <laughs> and he had a he had a long leash with the with the lead of his movie. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, he, held, he had to help Riker uh, get off uh, crack cocaine. That's what he is right. Man, I cannot wait to hear more about that dream in a few episodes. Um, but. Uh, yeah. But I, I do think that, like, I, I imagine, as you're saying, Peter, that not only discovering that he's hot as shit in these episodes, but also that, like, he is not shattering it up that much. No, he's he's very he's giving a very charming human performance. And it's the only reason that City on the Edge of Forever works, because you believe him when he makes those sort of flirty eyes at his love interest. When he makes those eyes, you're like. Oh, I like I really this this could work, not just because you're both attractive, but like you both seem to have this like uh, unforced chemistry that really makes people fall in love with a couple on screen. And it just that that's that's where performance really makes the, the, the drama and the intellectual or moral battle feel so much bigger. Sure. Um, and I'm sure that the pound of Vaseline on the lens also kind of helps too. But I mean, <laughs> but you're you're absolutely right. Like they do have that chemistry, that performance. And, and Joan Collins like totally owns everything. Like she's like totally puts both Nimoy and Shatner in their place when she shares a scene with them. Like she's great in that. It's It's one of my favorite TV performances I've ever seen before because she just like walks in and within seconds you're like, oh, I get her thing. Which yeah. is not true of most actors. Like, and, it, and in, in 50 minutes, you have to establish who you are, what your dramatic conflict is, uh, you know, show off a little bit your acting skills and get then get the hell out of there. Like, that's a style of acting that doesn't exist as much anymore. But people used to have to do that all the time because there were so many shows like Twilight Zone and, you know, old cowboy shows where you just... Oh, it's the beautiful barmaid and, you know, it's a famous actress or semi-famous actress for one episode. Like, that used to be how a lot of actors got gigs. Like, for example, William Shatner on The Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And he's so panic-stricken on Twilight Zone that seeing him in this form, also a man of command, a man with, like, some charm, a man who gets to shut people down, but also, like, he's sort of this, like, barrel-chested dude, is, like, really attractive, and, and he's, like, cool, which is something I thought I'd never say about William Shatner, who I'm more <laughs> familiar with from, like, 
the roast of William Shatner and that fucking like spoken word music album he put out that I used to play as a joke for friends. Like it, it is weird that someone and I imagine Peter, this is true because I think you were a little too young for Rescue Nine One One, which is the other way I really knew <laughs> William Shatner. Yeah. And I, I, I'm too uh, young for T.J. Hooker, uh, so. <laughs> You definitely are. So I imagine, yeah, your your knowledge of William Shatner is like the roast, Priceline commercials, and like over the top cameos in forgotten movies like Showtime with Eddie Murphy and Robert yeah. De and now making ill advised political statements. Well, in Canada, he actually did uh, a, a ad campaign for All Brand, uh, and his 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 picture was was at the top of the All Brand box. So it's you know like it, William Shatner promotes regularity. So <laughs> like that was I don't know if that, that would made it down to the states, but that was very prominent here about it, ten it years did ago. Not. Okay, we were we were all about the Priceline negotiator though. Yeah, I don't know. I remember that too. Yeah, <laughs> and you could be all about re- regularity and still be hot. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is still hot, and she had Activia commercials, which was all about how the special she probiotic poops. yogurt gives you good poops. Um, <laughs> And, I, and we still, when she popped up in the new Halloween movie in the trailers, I was like, Jamie Lee Curtis is still so pretty. She just still because she's pooping so heart. well. Yeah, um, she's pooping the, so. The well. other thing, though, Peter, about City on the Edge of Forever, which I'm pretty sure you didn't know, but maybe you did, but I bet you were excited about. Uh, I know you're a big Harlan Ellison fan. Were you excited when the credit popped up, or did you not notice? I already knew it because I had seen the. Um, Harlan Ellison documentary where they get in the house with him. What is it called? Like Harlan Ellison, uh, cranky old bastard or some shit. Um, d- d- Harlan Ellison wanted and desired. I don't know. There's a there's a documentary that's specifically. I, about I haven't seen it. That's why I'm not. There's a documentary that specifically name. like has really great access with him and is about how much of like a cranky old fuck he is. But like the documentarian clearly loves that about him. It's a very fun documentary, and he talked a lot about this. Uh, his Twilight Zone episode that was like. Semi ripped off by the Terminator. There's a whole book about the. I think it's. It might be called the fight for the city on the edge of forever. Yeah. About um, multiple lawsuits about this episode. One episode of TV. It's just yeah. crazy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, he's he's a, a, a lovable scamp, and uh, you know sometimes, and then when you get on his uh, his bad side, he's the worst human being on the planet. So, uh, but it's always fun to be on the outside looking in. He uh, it's and he wrote a book about it um, about how angry he was. Um, I have no mouth, but my lawyer does. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only reason why we can safely talk about this is because you know, God rest his soul, he passed away. Otherwise, we probably would be sued by the end of this episode. So <laughs> we we just won't tag him in the show notes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, true yeah, enough. He's uh, but he he wrote some of the best sci-fi of all time, some of the most influential sci-fi of all time, and uh, you can really and he didn't write in a pretentious manner very often. He wrote in a very clear, sort of human level, um, to try and get these concepts across to everyday people, and that's why I love at the end of the episode when they finally come back, they've made their moral choice, nobody's happy with it, and I think. Shatner says, "Like, let's get the hell out of here." Yeah, that yeah. has to be an Ellison line. Has to, because that is that is Ellison's thing to a T. Like, he's just like, like, what else do you say? I'm, I'm, I'm. He, he's a man that's that understands the the rage half of the humanity equation so much better than I think most of us do. And that that's sort of like, 
I did the right thing, but it doesn't mean I'm fucking happy about it. Get me back to the starship. Let's go. And uh, actually, that's that's a good point uh, to mention, Peter, because uh, I'm pretty sure the producers wanted to... One of the things that you'll notice... Um, if you watch more episodes of the original series, is the cutesy dumb ending, the little epilogue that they sometimes tack on with, they play some cutesy music and Kirk and Spock and McCoy are bantering on the bridge. And I'm pretty sure the producers wanted to do that at the end of that episode to kind of lighten it after such a heavy ending. And they didn't do it, um, which is... I love it. Yeah, thankfully, you know. And they, and they do that... Punch. They yeah. do that a little bit on uh, Muck Time. Uh, even though it is a, it is a happy ending because they didn't kill off a main character. Uh, Peter, did we get your thoughts on that one? We sure yeah. didn't. So if, if it leads me to anything uh, about the rest of the show is that the show is going to be very concerned with how horny Spock is. Um, <laughs> is that true? <laughs> no. The one time. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, one time that Spock gets horny? I think I can't think of another horny example, though I'm sure there's some well, like, gamesters of Treleskin episode I'm forgetting. <laughs> well, there's there are a few other episodes where he's you know kind of expressing some some desire of of, of love of some kind, and of course, well, I I don't want to get get ahead of ourselves, so but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely his horniest episode. There's no question. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's also a, it's also a very goofy episode upon rewatch. It does. It worked for me in uh, a lot of aspects because, uh, for one, I don't know if this was for the remaster or whatever, but all those establishing shots of Vulcan with the arena sort of perched on top of those like uh, verticular mesas. I don't even know what the hell you'd call that geographic form. It's these tall towers with these flat sort of yeah. platforms on it. Okay, so you didn't watch the original versions. You watched the uh, the remasters with the new digital effects and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, the new digital okay. effects okay. mostly looked bad, but I wasn't sure if the I wasn't sure if the um the the uh specific geographic features of Vulcan were from the original show or not because they looked awesome. Okay. No, they they were not. Um, so that scene where they're walking up to the um, arena or whatever it is with the city in the back, that's from the remaster. Yeah, that's I augmented. Know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The ship just looks very 2000, 2002, kind of whenever they remastered this. Um, I actually really like the remasters. I don't know how you feel, Bruce. Um I uh, I actually one of the reasons why I bought a Blu-ray player was so that I back in 2011 was so that I could get the box sets of the original series so I could watch them with the original effects. Um, okay. Which, but I, I whenever I've watched like a select episodes with my kids or whatever, um, I usually watch the remasters with them because I figured they're not going to appreciate the the really like the the crappy 11 shots that they had of the enterprise that they kept yeah. on reusing right so that looked 2d sometimes and, yeah yeah but uh, anyway sorry this is a bit of a derailing but um but yeah so, some of the stuff from the remaster i guess i like because i loved how vulcan looks from from that far away shot it was very evocative and it was very dramatic and it sort of speaks to what kind of culture you would see represented in the episode one thing i think you are going to be surprised by um when we get to some next generation episodes is how well those special effects hold up uh, because of all the model work, especially that they did um, on film. Like there's, they're not remastered They're I mean, they're remastered for HD, but they're not like special edition versions and they still look better than most science fiction on TV. I will say, well, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the stuff in the motion picture looks so good. Like 95% oh, so of it looks 
so amazing. Like some of the best stuff I've ever seen in a sci-fi movie. Um, Which is not surprising because uh, they hired the best uh, space special effects guy around. Mm-hmm. Um, Douglas <laughs> Trumbull. Bob Spaceman? Yeah, Bob Space Bob <laughs> Bichemin. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, no, yeah, Douglas Trumbull from which is funny because I just saw um, they were doing those 4K showings of 2001. Oh, so yes. I just saw that on the uh, and I joked with people that I might as well throw away my fucking Blu-ray because <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to be ex- experience the movie that uh, that amazingly again. And it made me pine to see this in a 4K restoration on the big screen because uh, it it is pretty amazing. But I think. Uh, Peter, unless you have anything else to say about a muck time, I feel like that's a good point to transition into the motion picture. I just have a couple quick things yeah. to say overall. Um, one thing that I will say about a muck time that, that, that I really like is that the show understood that one of the reason, one of the ways you define a character is you define what they aren't. Spock acting weird and everyone being like, "What the fuck is up with that guy?" really helps highlight what kind of character he is. Like, I could see McCoy throwing a bowl of food, you know, out of his room and pissed off. But, like, Spock would never do that, right? So, yeah. I, I I love that the, the show understood that very early. Like, you can you can tell more about a character sometimes by the way people react when the person is acting out of character. And that's, that's very cool. Um, I, and then the other thing I want to say is that in both this and Devil in the Dark – is that, and maybe this felt heavy at the time because of the context it was in, but to my modern ears, the way they talk about sci-fi, sci-fi concepts very much feels down to earth and unpretentious. And like they're trying to get an audience on board. They're not just throwing gobbledygook and mumbo jumbo at you just to, you know, make it sound more authentic. They're not going for um, verisimilitude. They're going for actually getting you behind the concepts, an actual thematic approach to dialogue, which I I, I found so refreshing because I when I heard of Star Trek, I was like, oh, so they're going to be like spending 10 minutes an episode talking about fucking like, well, the fucking cataclysmic reactor on the photonic beam is going to make uh, gobbledygook in the phaser drive. And then we have to update the phaser drive. Instead, it's like... Uh, Can't wait well, till you watch next gen episodes. Yeah, that's then, that's more of a later Star Trek thing. Yeah, for sure. Once the audiences were more ready for it. But in, uh, in this, they're just like, uh, they have phaser ones. They need phaser twos to kill this monster. Everyone got it? Good. <laughs> Cool. They, uh, in in the next gen episodes, it was so bad the scriptwriters didn't even try to do shit. They would just write the word tech, and then I believe um, Denise uh, Okanda Okunda Okuda. Uh, yeah. Um, again, another one of those word one of those names I've only ever seen written. So yeah, yeah. I've never heard anyone say it. Uh, and her husband, who I'm forgetting the name of, uh, Michael Okuda. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so they they would write all of the sciency stuff in, oh, in all cool. the scripts. And I have one more just real quick list of things that I was very impressed by Um, as someone who came to this late. And like I'm proud to say I was very into the show overall. Uh, Every episode except for City on the Edge of Forever was 10 or 15 minutes too long. But that's just how I feel about all media. Um, The cheap. So you you support more commercials in your hour long dramas because (laughs) these episodes are 50 minutes sans commercials. Now it'd be like 39. 
Oh, so you're so much you're, better if there were more commercials. You yeah. want to see more like Ford commercials, ideally during an episode of Star Trek. Sweet. Yes. But uh, the cheapness is very charming, especially in Devil in the Dark. The caves uh, being that sort of like clearly like ruffled aluminum or something that was painted like the, the very tech. The foam industry was booming. Let's yes. just say. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's paper, actually. <laughs> let's, yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. <laughs> It made me, it reminded me of Godzilla movies and kaiju movies, which yeah. I found very charming. The uh, acting can be a little stiff at times, but sometimes it's very emotionally resonant, um, particularly in City on the Edge of Forever. It's one of those things when the script is there, the cast seems pretty up for it, which I was, I was really happy with. And then the back and forth between a lot of the characters is fun, which implies to me like they had a good set of directors and producers and the cast like... If they if they didn't like each other, they fucking knew how to act like it. Spoiler alert: They didn't like one specific person. <laughs> can, one? Can you guess? Shatner. <laughs> uh, Shatner. Yes. Yeah. Everyone hated Shatner. Yeah. Um, the colors are amazing, which is one thing that I'm gonna bitch about in the movie. Um, <laughs> well, the costume design. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that. The costume design in the movie is fucking atrocious. Um, well, it was Easter. <laughs> well, you know why you you know why the original series of Star Trek is so colorful is because uh, RCA wanted to sell color televisions. Is that true? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, that, that was that I, was a directive. I love, I love the color of me too. Her shirt. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh no, the I absolutely love the color palette of the, of the original series. It's one of the reasons why it's the series that I go back to to watch, and I don't watch the the Next Generation very much anymore. It's I love the look of the original series because it's so vibrant. Yeah, it almost looks Technicolor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, this will not be the last original series episode that we will talk about. Um, I think the format we're going to do, because it especially makes sense with next week's movie, uh, and I think it actually makes sense for all of them. So I think we're going to do an episode, uh, a movie. So uh, after the intro that was that was three episodes at once, I think we're going to try to do um, one episode that somehow informs or relates to the movie to try to make sure that Peter understands not just the references, but also uh, continues on the context of watching. So, yeah, so I'm very excited. This will not be the last Star Trek episode that we discuss. But as our show implies, I think it's time to move into talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, so let's let's just get into it. So, yeah, so we'll um, – I almost feel like we don't need to recap the plot, but if you are someone who followed us from We Love to Watch and just like hearing our voices, strangely enough, uh, the quick plot of Star Trek The Motion Picture is uh, it takes place – I think it's supposed to be five years, maybe it's seven years after the original series. And Kirk is now an admiral working at command. The Enterprise is getting a refit, uh, being handed by Will Decker. Uh, the new captain, played by Seventh Heaven, the <laughs> Seventh Seventh Heaven's own Stephen, whatever his last name is, Collins. Collins. Stephen Collins. He has a ship. There's still some uh, Scotty O'Hara. Some of those people are on it. Kirk, or uh, sorry, uh, Spock is on Vulcan, studying to complete the fuck. What's the name of that ritual? Uh, the Kalinar. Kalinar. Uh, this is this is very good that Bruce is on here. <laughs> Where my nerdum fails, he can pick me. When there was only one step of footsteps, uh, one one set of footprints. That's when Bruce was carrying me. So he's uh, there. Uh, everyone else is basically on the Enterprise. Kirk comes back and is like, "Hey, I finally got my ship back. Uh, I'm the captain, and we're going to go investigate this giant uh, ship or uh, 
celestial object that killed some Klingons and is moving straight towards Earth. And we're the only ship in light distance, which is a common theme of all these movies, as you'll find out, Peter. So yeah, eventually Klingons they suck at war. They just kind of turned their ship around and they shot like a butt photon. <laughs> and they were like, hmm, that's all we got. Sorry. That's funny. I never thought of those as anal representations but thank you for bringing that to us peter uh appreciate your new person perspective it takes mocking fresh eyes to our see culture. such a thing uh so so eventually i mean the real quick recap is they investigate the ship they determine that uh through a lot of special effects sequences spock comes back whatever's at the center of this giant vessel is communicating with spock uh, he mind melds, finds out that it's trying to get home to meet its creators. Eventually, you realize that it's great. It is. It does not like uh, human beings or any uh, non-artificial uh, life. Thinks that is not a true creation, and it's actually the Voyager probe who has been um, modified by some aliens. Uh, going back to report to its creator, uh, its findings from going across the universe, and obviously, it can't do that. So they uh, find a way to communicate with it. V'ger is then shocked that the humans were actually the creators all along. And in realization that uh, V'ger must evolve to the next level, he absorbs uh, Will Decker into the already uh, – I always forget how to pronounce her name. Alila? Ilea. 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 Uh, into Aaliyah, uh, his uh, V'ger had previously taken uh, Aaliyah, who is a uh, very quick replacement so that she can be killed in this movie, um, and uh, moves on. And Kirk retains his uh, command of the Enterprise, and they go out there somewhere. Uh, and that's that's the very shoddy, quick recap of the it's movie. The recap was pretty good, and it skipped like 45 minutes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's no your recap was good it it, it just speaks to the, the common complaint about this movie that it could have been cut down to an episode or whatever. well there's actually a director's cut that they never remastered for hd but i have the dvd that adds 20 minutes um yeah robert a, wise a, came back and added yeah. 20 minutes which is interesting it's actually pretty good um at least when i saw it in uh college when it came out so here's here's the thing i want to frame up because I think this is very important when we're talking about these movies in general. Because this movie really starts it. And I think it's why, in general, to kind of frame up a little mini theme that will be going through this podcast to look out for as we cover these movies. I think it's pretty common out that the Star Trek 1 through 6 are considered superior through uh, the, the next generation movies. One of the big reasons for that is that Kirk is kind of the main character of the series and he's the main character of these movies and he has an arc in these movies because he has personal desires and wants and needs and his arc is that he wishes that he could just be the captain of his youth. He's worried about getting older. It's going to be a common thing that gets touched on from this movie where he realizes he made a mistake getting promoted and doing the quote unquote grown up thing. Uh, to Star Trek Generations, where he is trying to desperately hold on to his uh, his mortality. Having that kind of consistent arc is very important to what 
makes these movies on the whole very good. And it's also why they had so much trouble in the Next Generation movies is really truly making them cinematic. Next Generation worked great as a TV show, but you do want a level of like personal motivation for your characters in movies and an arc for them to grow. And so in all the Next Generation movies, which we'll talk about when we get to them, they add dimensions to Picard's character that that ends up that gives him some sort of personal stakes that feels artificial. Picard was more of a like you know he was not he was a think locally act globally. His desires were the Federation's desires. That's why he was a very good captain, but he had minimal to no personal motivating factors I would say for the most part. And so on each movie they graft a new one onto him and it makes it feel a disconnect from the series. Whereas the movies do something very well where obviously that wasn't necessarily present in the original series, but all the movies take the stance that time has passed since the original series and Kirk is looking back on that time fondly and wants to go back to it. And this sets it up from the get-go with Kirk kind of being – kind of forcing his way back into command of the Enterprise even though he should be. Uh, at a command center being the the manager of Starfleet. But he wants to go back on that showroom floor and sell people the merchandise. Um, so I think that's an important touch point because we're going to talk about it in each movie. And then we're definitely going to talk about it in relation to what uh, personal stakes they graft onto Picard in each movie. And they're different each time. So having said that, uh, my quick experience with this movie is that I watched it a bunch because it was the only Star Trek movie at um, at the library that was three blocks from my house in elementary school. Uh, not surprising for a, a third or fourth grader, this was not my favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, it is slow and a little bit meandering, and uh, the special effects in some ways are more impressive now than they were to me in 1992. I, but, but around high school and college, when I started revisiting a lot of the movies that I hadn't watched at that time in a while... I really appreciated this as what a lot of people would say is like the purest distillation of Star Trek in cinema form where uh, there's a there's a problem to be solved that people want them to destroy and they find a way to meet it on its own uh, terms, even if that's not terms that they can personally relate to. So uh, this has definitely grown in esteem by myself since uh, since I first saw it. I still sometimes tend to skip it if I'm doing a quick, like, I'm going to watch two, three, four, and six. It is it is one of the superior Star Trek movies. Definitely, I would say, in the top top uh, half. Uh, Bruce, what, what's your history with this movie? Well, <clears throat> my current ranking of the series is uh, puts the motion picture at the, the number two spot um, after the wrath of Khan. And it wasn't always like that very much in the same respect, um, that, that you just described. Um, when I watched these for that, for on that Christmas day back in 1991, um, this was a slog. It was probably around actually when the, the director's cut came out. I remember borrowing the DVD of that from the library and re and doing a rewatch, um, and watching that up, that version of it for the first time and sort of be like, you know what, this movie's kind of cool. I actually did a, a watch through of the Star Trek films with uh, with a friend of mine, probably about four or five years ago, and uh, we sort of jumped around in the order, and we eventually got around to the motion picture, and I watched it with him, and we, I was like, you know what, I think I, I think I might really like this movie, and I actually had the 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 good fortune to see it 
on the big screen about two years ago. Oh yeah, and uh, and it's like holy shit. Okay, yeah, this movie is great. <laughs> um, and yeah. one of the things, one of the things that are one of the major complaints that's leveled at this movie is uh, is it's it's sort of missing uh, missing that 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 fun element or or missing the character dynamics of the original series and when i saw it on the big screen um i realized that's that's a load of bullshit um the character dynamics are there and 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 it's actually a very subtle and very careful examination of Kirk's role as a ca- as the captain of the Enterprise and the the whole getting the band back together type thing that kind of progresses throughout the film I like the fact that it takes a long time and then the first time you actually get Kirk Spock and McCoy together in a room to have a conversation it's it's a highly comedic scene and it's just it's it's like it's that the movie sort of has this breath of fresh air in it even though it's at this point it's sort of plodding it's moving very slowly and then it gets to this point and kirk is like spock sit down it's like it's it's totally played for 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 like the the humor and it's based totally on the characters um I'm not sure how much you really want me to get into this. Should I just keep on talking or? Yeah, keep okay, going. All right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really struck struck me when I saw it last was, I think the the movie very much sets Deckard up as a as a character that you can sympathize with, because Kirk is a total dick. Yeah. And and so you can to- you you're totally. You could totally see how no 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 that like Decker should be the captain of the Enterprise, um, but Robert Wise said that he said basically that his favorite performance in the movie is Stephen Collins because he had an impossible role, and I agree with that. Yeah, any I think a lot of actors would have, especially young actors, would have flubbed that necessary balance of basically telling Kirk to fuck off, but also understanding like. Where hey. he falls in the chain of command. Yes, like, like, hey, I understand you're the boss, but like, you're sitting in my seat. Yeah, um, and totally, and and, and he to- he does a great job of that. But one of the things that I think is very subtle and very very intelligent about the way that the movie handles the characters is that if Decker was the captain when they headed towards Viger, he would have acted out of defense. Whereas yep. Kirk's inclination, whereas Kirk's entire character is, let's find out more. Let's let's explore this. Let's 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 find out the reason why this thing is coming towards Earth, and let's try he to has solve. Inquisitiveness, yeah, yeah, that, that curiosity, right? And so, like, Vijir is curious about about us, and Kirk, being the captain of the Enterprise, is forcing everybody around him to be curious about Vijir. It's like you can't shoot this problem you need to go into it you need to you need to explore you need to understand and you need to find the root cause because if you don't we're all going to die so i think i think one of the the the, the very fact that kirk puts himself in the position where everybody is going to be like whoa okay this guy's a dick he's he's bossing everybody around everybody's used to decker like he's he's sort of the guy that should be in command decker is the one that wants to say we got to blow this thing up before it gets to earth and it's and, and kirk is the one that basically ultimately saves humanity because he's saying nope putting the brakes to that let's go find out what's going on here i was gonna say and i don't think it's an accident that like 
Stephen Collins in 1979 looks a lot like William Shatner did in 1967. Sure. I think there, I think there is supposed to be a little bit of a visual representation of this is the new Kirk, but you can't actually replace Kirk. Kirk has something special besides just uh, some of the other components that you would expect from a captain. Um, and that's what Kirk believes. Like, Kirk believes that he is more... Uh, he's in a better place serving the universe, even though that lines up with his personal desires. He also believes um, that he sh- he's better served being in that position. The universe is better served. And in most cases, he, he ends up being right. It's his first best destiny after all, you know? Yeah. Decker ends up having uh, the most traditional character arc for a protagonist, even though he's technically not the protagonist. Because throughout the course of the film, he slowly learns and through his own frustrations, learns that how to deal with his own emotional issues and how to that that the Kirk way is actually the good way that you need to if, if you take a little bit of compassion and self-sacrifice and you take those risks that you're willing to take, such as like in uh, Dancer in the or Devil in the Dark. <laughs> first you did it to me. Uh, yes. Devil in the Dark. Kirk takes a risk by not just blowing the fucking uh, pizza blob. Um, by just blowing the pizza blob away with his phaser twos or whatever. But he's taking that risk because he thinks it's a necessary risk to take. And Decker has a traditional character arc in this. And he helps Kirk save the day by listening to Kirk, following his command, but also learning that sort of idealist human compassion and not to react out of fear, to react out of that. You could say that he teaches him the new way. <laughs> um, the, uh, so I, I'm, I'm very excited to hear, Peter, your, um, your overall thoughts before we get into some more scenes and specifics. One thing I'll say, this is one of those movies that's kind of a tough first movie to recommend to someone if they're trying to get into Star Trek. Two uh, is tough for a different reason. Uh, that you might not know who the fuck everyone is, but this this really is taking um, advantage of the fact that the the series went off the air, and then twelve years later this movie comes out, and the ratings were actually way higher than anyone knew because of I forget the exact specifics. Bruce, do you remember why they like they weren't measuring like uh, college kids and stuff like that at the time when Nielsen? So like later on they discovered that it was actually one of like the top ten shows on television. Are you talking? You're talking about the original series, correct? Like, yes. Yeah, because they canceled it because the ratings were bad. But they they found out that that wasn't actually the case. It was the demographics. Yeah, That's I think uh, they they what they didn't. Of course, it was it was marketers. They didn't um, or whoever was yeah whoever was measuring the ratings. They weren't looking at the uh, they weren't looking at the demographics. They were just looking at the numbers for the time slot. And so what happened was um, Star Trek was uh, was really appealing to that you know that 18 to, to 34 yeah like that that juicy you know money de- money to demographic and i don't think they really understood what that meant at that point and so that's what it was yeah yeah and so when and that that didn't get captured until it was on a better time slot when it was when it started getting syndicated in the 70s yeah so yeah its value was was not really understood at the time 
And so you had like this thing that was unique. I mean, it was a pre-Star Wars world. And so and then it became this huge hit on syndication. There were Star Trek conventions. There was a clamoring for more Star Trek to the point that um, this wasn't supposed to be a movie. They were actually going to relaunch the show and call it Star Trek Phase 2. And I believe they produced about 11 or 12 screenplays that some of them were recycled for Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, and they were going to do the show again. Star Wars comes out, is a huge phenomenon, and they go, how about we make a movie instead? That's why I think for a new viewer, this, this movie must be so perplexing, because it's a good hour and five minutes, based on my Blu-ray player's clock, that... Before Spock, McCoy, and Kirk are on the bridge together again. And they spend a lot of time showing the Enterprise and having them see all the stuff. And there's there's definitely a point of that where it's like, what? Who cares? This is too long. But I think some of it makes sense as like a, you know, at a time where TV shows and movies didn't come back. Like, now it's all they fucking do. I think Murphy Brown re-premiered tonight. <laughs> I mean. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not kidding with the original cast. Like, it is so commonplace now. But the idea of 12 years later to have the whole cast together to make a movie continuing the story of these people were was insane. Uh, I, I don't know if there was another example. Um, and so, let alone with, like, a rabid fan base. So, this really was, um, an, I think, an attempt at fan service. Even if I th- the general reaction at the time was, what the fuck was that? Because uh, they were expecting Star Wars and they got a Star Trek episode that I think even a lot of the diehard fans were underwhelmed, even though its appreciation has grown uh, over the years. So that's a lot of setup because, Peter, I am just fascinated with what, what you made of this movie. I didn't watch this in the context of, uh, you know comparing it to star wars and comparing it to other like you know space opera style movies at the time i watched this comparing it to blade runner and alien and like the more deliberately paced 70s sci-fi movies um and silent running and stuff like that that i i always knew that star trek was going to be more about the intellectual struggles and that it might not actually work that well as an action movie <laughs> um and that it, that's not what its goals were um so i went into it with like fairly low expectations for the um you know action struggles and how uh, these battles were going to go off and i was very pleased with what i got which was a just awesome character work and characters bouncing off each other based on philosophy and their pride and, and moral, you know, failings. And based on a, the core dynamic of it feels so much bigger than a typical episode. Because, like, in a typical episode, it's like, if we fuck this up, this creature will die. Or if we fuck this up, they'll be have irreparable harm on a crew. Which is, you know, all people that have signed up for this. And, you know, losing a, a crew member isn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. In this, it did feel like a properly epic struggle. So it didn't feel like it was too small or it was just an episode of the show blown up. It was weird to see them have all that money again. Like, just it's just weird seeing them have money in general. Because, like, the original show is so cheap looking. And this, it's like, there's light shows and special effects. And, and, and the model work is 
ludicrous. Some of the most impressive model work I've ever seen in anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And I could see an audience getting fucking bored with watching this movie on a shitty 80s TV during the the slow sequences where they're showing off the the inside of uh, V'ger's, you know, whatever you call it, planet cosmos spaceship. (laughs) I could see someone, you getting bored when you can't really appreciate the details, but in a theater or at home on HD, I was like just soaking in it. Like I love just sitting and taking in all the details and all the strange curves and bends in the thing. And it's, it adds an appropriate creepiness and an epicness to it that the show just didn't have. And it makes, I, I just didn't, I, I didn't resonate with the, the, the complaint that this was an episode of the show blown up a little bigger than it's, than it's britches. I, I, that didn't, that didn't resonate with me at all. So just to, I, I want to comment a little bit on the the money part because the movie's budget was $46 million, which in 2018 dollars is $165 million. Yeah, they were – I mean, they still don't give budgets like that to most movies. So to give you a sense of how much they're like, oh, between Superman and Star Wars, put all the money. And that was the criticism. The criticism was they were more obsessed with the special effects than uh the characters which i mean first of all special effects look really good and we get a lot of great character moments the moment when mccoy comes back so so far like i said mccoy is my favorite character (laughs) oh and he's the best he comes back he gets teleported on the deck he refuses to be teleported before he enters the scene so he makes a great entrance before he makes an entrance and then they basically have to forcibly teleport him on the ship he's got a fucking beard and he comes in and he's like they uh, they uh, enacted a rarely used protocol, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they drafted me. <laughs> like, yeah. He's so angry. And you get the sense he's wearing this, like, terrible terry cloth-like uh, sort of robe. And you get the sense that he was, like, drinking space pina coladas and smoking space hash on some planet and, like, just chilling out. Just not being on the Enterprise and just loving his life. And then all of a sudden someone's like, hey, uh, sorry, um, you got to go. And just booted him back into space after that terrifying teleporter scene in particular. Yeah, yeah. So creepy. That was- P.S. Movie rated G for general audiences. Yeah. So this movie was, yes. So this movie was um, directed by Robert Wise, who I think most people – based on this little filmography, will agree is a great director. There's something yeah. in here for everyone. Andromeda Strain, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which sort of stand up his, his sci-fi uh, bona fides. Um, the Haunting and Curse the Cat People, which I think stands up his his uh, genre and horror bona fides, even though Curse the Cat People is not really a horror movie. And Sound of the Music and West Side Story, as like he can direct a big budget, bouncy movie with a ton of set pieces and helicopters and miniatures and blah 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 like particularly more sound of music side of things and i'm not really fond of either sound of music or west side story um west side story i'm more fond of than sound of music um but that's the correct take yeah um (laughs) um but anyways the point of that is that he can do all sorts of big budget epic movies and you totally get why a studio would trust him with with that kind of money that sequence with there's two great little horror sequences and it's the teleporter scene and the scene where uh V'ger first comes on as like a ray of light and both of them sort of 
show off his horror chops in a way that I was not expecting in a fucking Star Trek movie. Yeah, it's insane. This movie is rage. There's a. I feel like Peter, you sometimes pointed out movies like I think when you were we were watching when you were watching the Planet of the Apes movie, the one where like. They they shoot a baby is rated G. <laughs> <laughs> the one where they they shoot a baby, but don't worry, it was just a baby. It was a monkey. different. It was it was a different baby, <laughs> not the baby that you cared about. Um, hey, those movies uh, sold a lot of toys too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Here's one where uh, it, you could put caps in the gun and shoot babies yourself. <laughs> um, the special using the special marketing in the seventies was magic weird. trick. You can uh, take this baby out of the water and get it into Ricardo Montalban's backpack. <laughs> oh, I hope you like Ricardo Montalban for next week. Uh, the Montalban's back, baby. You have no idea. Bond with the bond, the bang and bang, big. <laughs> Um, I actually think this might be a surprise to you, which, again, is just one of the delights of doing this show. Oh, you're being oh. serious. Ricardo Montalban is in Wrath of Khan. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Yeah, Khan. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, Peter, you're in for such a treat. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, what, one thing, Peter, I'm actually really surprised. Um, so one of the things that was like a success for me 100%, as I mentioned, I really liked the sci-fi concepts. As a kid, and I'm curious what you thought of the mystery and the resolution, because um, I loved the whole, like, holy shit, it's the Voyager space probe who's been reprogrammed by aliens and is now, like, this giant massive thing coming back to give its data. Uh, like, that I fucking loved. And it was helped by the fact that uh, Roddenberry uh, said in an interview that he thought that the home, the planet that V'ger went to was um, – was the Borg home planet. So, of course, myself and, like, looking for these, like, fan service connections and being, as all, I think, Next Generation fans at the time, big fan of the Borg, I'm like, oh, man, I love the idea of, like, the Borg first sending this to get to know us and all this other all this other stuff. But I, the mystery was great. The fact that it was the Voyager space probe, I loved. Bruce, were you a fan of that, even when you were a little more? Yeah, no, that, the, the twist, I always thought that twist was really cool. And, you know, him going up and sort of wiping off the, the space dirt and reveal it, you know, Voyager 6 or whatever. No, I loved that. Um, that felt like a Planet of the Apes twist right there. It really was, yeah. Um, could I double back on something that you were talking yeah. about uh, the, yes. the, with regard to the budget? Um, this was a very expensive movie, and it's uh, it's the expense and the sort of, I guess, the, the lackluster reception that it received uh, set the tone for the budgets for the rest of the series. Would you say that that's, that's an accurate thing to say, Aaron, in terms of yeah. them not wanting to spend any money at all ever again? That yeah, That's 100% true, even though, worth noting... Uh, in today's dollars, this movie made four hundred and fifty million dollars. Exactly. So it has. It has no. Absolutely. And, and so it has this 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 you know perception of it being this this flop, but it wasn't, and they kept on making them. But um, one of the things that is awesome about the motion picture is the fact that pretty much every single square inch of the set, every single model that was used in it, and every single piece of music that was composed for it, with the exception of some of the, the crazy electronic sounds that Jerry Goldsmith uh, was, was incorporating into it. Like, this movie was basically cannibalized for every single... Part. Oh yeah, and the uh, Wait, the, was this the the first appearance of the Jerry Goldsmith theme. Yeah, yeah, that Star was used yeah. for the Next Generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, is, it fucking slaps. Like yeah, it, it does. Came, yeah, it came it's so on good. during the opening credits, and I was like, 
holy shit, this is so much better than the theme to the original show. Like, oh, hey, yeah, no, that's, uh, well, Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, the guy's like, he's, he's the one of the best film composers ever and like this is this is i think it's one of his best scores it's so rousing I yeah. it's why i still never skip the, the next Overture. generation intro yeah, like, yeah, yeah i could hear the, i could hear patrick stewart read the narration on top of that that song anytime yeah oh absolutely and uh, the the enterprise the the eight foot model which i actually yeah. think is now housed at the uh the science fiction museum in seattle uh oh. that's uh that ship is that when you watch the movies, like the, re- the the as you go through the movies, Peter, it's the same damn model. Like they they used that model in all of these movies. It they just that good. Yeah, they yeah. just repainted it. Uh, every every single ILM technician that touched that model in the subsequent films, ILM didn't work on the motion picture, but they worked on all but part five, and you can tell. Um, is is they hated that model because of how heavy and how how structurally sound it was but it wasn't designed for their particular blue blue screening processes like that that model is a beast and I uh, imagine especially if you're trying to do shots underneath it or whatever and you need to crane a camera underneath it like you can't just put it on wires you got to put it on like high tension wires or you you know you have to do some tricks to hide how you're actually mounting something that heavy yeah, and and Trumbull, of course, he he has his own methods of doing things, and they they're not the same type of blue screen with motion controlled cameras and 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 matting that uh, that ILM employed with Star Wars and when they worked on the Star Trek films. Like so, it's they had to retrofit the model in order for it to work for that. But uh, but yeah, like the the expense, like Paramount got every single dime that they put into that movie. Yeah, what's the other big – so, the, obviously, the other big, like, things that they kind of cannibalized is – well, I, they kind of cannibalized the plot for Star Trek IV, just uh, yep. a few movies later. Uh, Will Riker and Deanna Troy from Next Generation are carbon copies of Will Decker and – Ilea, um, yeah. I feel like there's a couple other big things I'm forgetting. Uh, well, the 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 sets, like the the hallways and uh, and like the oh, and the yeah. bridge set, of course, those were those were reused multiple times. I'm pretty sure that the Klingon battle cruisers that at the beginning of the film, uh, those were repurposed, or even, they may have even just made one of them oh, and yeah. then you know basically just re like trip you know tripled it for the for the shot or whatever. But uh, but. There is something funny, Peter, that you may not realize in that because we haven't watched an original series episode with Klingons yet. But they're the ones um, with the fucked up foreheads, right? Yeah, but in the original series, they weren't. They just were ethically dubious portrayals. Goatees people. with bronze. If they had bronzer and they had goatees. Yeah. Oh. So I imagine that if you were watching the movie for the first time, there was a. I mean, they say Klingon, but I'm sure there was a. <laughs> what are these people? Oh, did they between the series and the movie? Did they mate with the vampire? <laughs> Um, they just, you know, they possible. had a budget, so they're like, let's let's make it look like an alien species instead of just. Uh, I like uh, how they sound like uh, me with a cold, cl- trying to plum. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you like that because they're going to be featured quite frequently. Are they? So are they like in uh in Mass Effect terms? Are they like the Krogan? Like they just like love war? Like yeah, yeah. Warheads? I literally identical. The whole species. You know the Krogan. You essentially know Klingons. That's yeah. very helpful. Cool. Yeah, that's the um, other thing. Uh, that's the other thing is some of these these concepts and themes are coming to me through the imitators, right? So yeah. yeah. Any other just general thoughts of seeing this movie, Peter? Before we kind of go through 
some of our favorite moments. And then since we've, I, I feel like we could end up recording another two hours, but I don't want to, I don't want to keep everyone up too late. What, what's any other general things we need to? I, I uh, have Peter? a real quick question. I yeah. hope this doesn't take long. How does season three end? And does it lead to this? Like does season no. three no. end with Spock's appointment? Or does it end with Spock going to do the co- 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 colon arc? <laughs> uh, season, <laughs> season three ends with Peter going a woman. Ca- or not Peter. Kirk going uh, a woman captain. I don't know about this. I guess it's fine. Uh, <laughs> oh, so they didn't anticip- anticipate the end. Oh, no, no, okay. no. Just a, just a cancel TV show. And I think they set that up really well. Like, I think the passage of time. Um, w- one of the things that was shocking to me about Star Trek movies at the time, which now is like as fucking normal as ever, was that the movies contained a continuity at all. Yeah. Like, especially as we get through like two uh, through six, that they are literal sequels to each other, picking up the story uh, and going in different directions with it, which – Every movie I was watching at the time, because I hadn't seen Star Wars yet, as I as we mentioned last week, uh, every other movie I was watching at the time was like a sequel, because it was mostly kid or kid-like movies. But even the stuff like, um, you know, Ghostbusters that I really loved or uh, Batman, it was like, okay, here's all new, here's all new people, or here's a remake of the original movie. Like the idea of actually having story beats that stretch on for more than one uh, film was amazing to me. And the only other series that I was watching at the time that did it that I can think of was Back to the Future, which was also one of my favorite movies. And even where they had a level of like to be continued everything's not resolved, we're taking components from the other movies. So the fact that the Star Trek movies seemed like we're doing that seemed wildly innovative to me personally because it was like I'd never seen things that were doing this. Yeah, I uh, I've never. Yeah, the everything that's that's coming to me about Star Trek is kind of new, but also a little bit familiar. Going forward, every time I make a new discovery, I'm like, oh, this is what the the show actually is. This is what the movie actually is. Like I'm sorting the wheat from the chaff. In terms of, of actual knowledge on the show. And uh, it is fun because the movie is full of actual surprises for me. And the fact that I could be emotionally touched by Star Trek is something that was... Um, I thought I, I I thought I was too old for it. I didn't watch the show early enough or, you know, I've seen enough media that covers these topics. Like, this isn't going to do anything for me. But I was emotionally touched by Decker and Hylia in the, in the third act and how they... He makes a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice for love that enables him to be together with his love. And there's nothing more Roddenberryan than uh, the fact that, you know, it's Decker and Ilea. They're going to, I don't know, it's kind of implied that they're going to rock the Casbah. And that's going to sort of create, that's <laughs> going to create this new sort of, uh, I don't know, life form or whatever. Sort of this uh, this joining of, of two things through the act of sex, I guess. But it's like, that's like a very Roddenberryan idea because he was very much sort of fixated on the whole free love thing, mainly because I think he just saw it as an opportunity to get laid more. But like, that's a very, that's mm-hmm. totally, totally like Roddenberry sort of imposing his his sort of perspective on things with regard to the, uh, with the motion picture. And uh, that's another 2001. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and which yeah. well, and the birth of a new race. And as a kid, Star Trek for me was so uh, strange because it was the first 
show, especially the next generation, that treated sex as like a normal thing that adults do in relationships because people were having sex. It was the plot of many Star Trek The Next Generation shows. And like, you know, that didn't happen in most things I was watching. And the stuff that I was like sitcoms that would reference sex, it was usually seen as like either something with a lot of jokes attached to it uh, or even like a huge deal. Like how many after school specials did I watch with like fucking Corey Matthews not having sex with Topanga until they were married or something like that. And it was like, wow, it's a big deal. So Star Trek really was the first thing that was like, oh yeah, sometimes people just have sex. Yeah, it's it's either Three's Company or the after school special. It's like there's yeah. no in between. Whereas, yeah, that's a slightly more slightly more mature treatment of the subject. Even still, it's probably still not all that mature in many respects. <laughs> but it's, no. you know, it's better than Three's Company, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Speaking, so- of, speaking of sex, um, okay, so it takes 35 minutes for Kirk to get in the seat of the Enterprise and for the ship to launch. Um, it takes 55 minutes until the Enterprise meets the big cloud of uh, Viger. There is such, and this is why I bet people got bored, but I was entranced. There is such a long sequence of uh, the Doc, who's the Scottish dude? Scotty. 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 Well, that's... Now I feel dumb. Um, so, so Groundskeeper... Uh, originally, Chekhov was going to be named Russie. Oh, no. No, not so Groundskeeper that's not, that's not true. And, and Kirk get on the, the special uh, space bus, and they just go out and look at, you know, the Enterprise is being cleaned up and fixed up and all that. It is, like, tantric... In how long it takes for them to actually dock with? Oh them. yes, absolutely. Like, they're they're like swooping around it, and they're like going nice and slow to show off all the features of it. And there's long lingering shots, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they docked. That is the most sexual thing in the motion picture for me, especially as Kirk is not hot anymore. <laughs> really, really bummed me out. Um, I think I was kind of I was kind of surprised how hot he is compared to every other movie where um, he still is a little svelte. Yes, yes. Like it, he he becomes attitude. more the William Shatner. He's lost the roguish, charmish attitude. You totally get why they picked Chris Pine for the reboot. At first, I thought it was just because he's like hot and charming, but like Chris Pine actually <laughs> does approximate Kurt, the original. Oh yeah, well. no, he's he, he. The entire cast of the reboots is like almost pitch perfect but chris pine is one of my favorites he he doesn't do the overacting but kind of gets i think kurt's or kirk's tone Uh, i will say this the the other thing that i think this movie gets a lot of shit for that they kind of rightful shit that they fix in the next movie which is the costuming design which is not good however kirk got some pretty bitching outfits I and, and I think that that term is appropriate because they are definitely in leisure suit uh, <laughs> land uh, in the seventies. But like Kirk's uh, admiral thing with like the green and the white is like um, I had the book that could uh, teach you how to make that costume. <laughs> although I forgot, I didn't know how to sew, so it was just like paper plastered on a shirt. But I kind of like his admiral. The great, yeah, yeah, I like thing. that one too. It, actually, yeah. Everything else is garbage, but I also, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say everything else, because I also kind of like his white t-shirt thing at the end with, like, the the deep V. Uh, I, he, Kirk gets good outfits. Everyone else looks like 
a Sears calendar from 1975 threw up on them. It's amazing that everyone is in leotards and like, yeah. you know, there's that moment where there's a, a soldier gets brought in uh, to meet the Hylia V'ger yeah. version. He literally looks like a 1930s football mm-hmm. player. Like he's got a fucking leather cap and shit and he's like, you expect him to be like, why I ought to mash your head. Like he doesn't, he just looks like a meat headed 30s dude and then there's a shot with Kirk coming onto a darker part of the ship. Robert Wise basically like shoots it like in a really dramatic, cool way with shadows. But the, it's so dark, and, and a, uh, one of the team members is wearing a um, brown leotard, and it just looks like they're <laughs> nude member just standing, leaning against a wall. It's it's very startling. Look, part of Star Trek has always been like inappropriately t- uh, copying fads from the time. There's an there's an <laughs> there's an episode of the original series that like they meet a planet who's really into strawberry alarm clock. So, <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, it it happens occasionally. Um, I do think for the most part, uh, next gen like figured out like oh maybe classical music would be good for everyone to listen to and just like these nice simple uniforms, but. Um, yeah, the the little, like, 70s and 60s cultural touches in Star Trek is always very funny to me. The gray uniform that Kirk wears, though, looks like a janitor's uniform. It's... Yeah. No, it's, it's bad. And the original show, I, maybe it's also fashion things, like, 70s fashion hasn't really come back in a mainstream way, but six, a lot of 60s, like, suits and such have. So, like, in the original show, them wearing, like, slim-fit pants and, like... Uh, a nice fitted shirt that has like that's in a cool color like that kind of looks like roughly like stuff people just wear today yeah so it looks good there's even a shot with kirk kind of pulling down his uh in one of the episodes we watched he's kind of pulling down his his shirt a little bit to like go past his belt area and oh i'm glad you like that yeah (laughs) like there's gonna be very excited for next generation (laughs) yeah um that they look like they're wearing like practical clothing whereas in the new one i'm like are, are they in a space prison like why did they make them dress so embarrassingly well there's yeah like the spock has a powder blue outfit and yeah it's it's very strange i don't quite understand why it is that they went in that direction for those uniforms but they're all yeah. going to an orgy every last one of them <laughs> yeah they're all going to the orgy from son of sam where uh john leguizamo and his wife have a fight in the car after like they all went to that orgy they do recover well they and they the next uh uniform that they settle on is like probably the most consistently featured uniform throughout like multiple series like they kind of stick with the red and the white coats for a long time so the red shirt thing isn't really much in this um so original that's, series. That's a totally, that's yeah. I've heard of. Uh, in the original series, yeah, they kill like two or three of them just, just, get, just getting to find the monster. Um, and then their names are never spoken again. Yeah, we didn't watch too many of the like random crewman dies. There's a little bit of that in Devil in the Dark. But what's kind of weird is that so um, from Star Trek to Star Trek The Next Generation, they flipped the colors of command and – like technical resources, engineering and stuff like that. So in uh, Next Generation, red is command, where in the original series, gold is. And then uh, in the Next Generation, they flip they they flip it. So gold becomes kind of engineering. And security. Uh, scientific. Yeah. 
yeah, security, that kind of stuff. It really doesn't apply to next generation on. And then in um, the rest of the movies, everyone has a red shirt. Uh, what what field they're in is denoted by um, kind of I don't know how to really describe it. It's, it's kind of a shoulder in color. So, uh, but almost everyone just kind of looks like they're wearing the same uniforms. Okay. Which, I mean, is probably a smart idea for you not getting, you know, sniped by a space sniper, which is clearly happening all the time in the show, you know? <laughs> well, you, ha- you, have to, you have to set the stakes somehow, and what better way to do that than to kill some random crew members, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, we need to talk um, about the 2001 stuff. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, this and happened we'll about to any scenes we missed, and we can wrap this up. Perfect. So the uh, the this movie has a lot of similarities to 2001. It came about 10 years after. It's similar to 2001 also in the sense that like there's stuff in it that um, is more about the intellectual debate in space rather than like, you know, thrills and, you know, swashbuckling adventure like Star Wars would be. Because in Star Wars, the different planets are mostly just like a new color palette for them to have battles on, right? In this, it's very much about like Oh, we met a new strange race that is a completely different culture than than we do. There's a scene where Spock kind of goes a little off the beaten path, decides to venture into V'ger's core, and I love it because that's when it becomes like a psychedelic, freak-out, surrealist fantasy where he's like trying to learn about V'ger by sort of invading V'ger's mental space. And, you know, it's obviously you track. There's awesome tracking shots of this the space's features, and then also he enters into a large chamber where he sees all the other wor- worlds that Viger has come in contact with, and he sees a large uh, Hylia or Alia, um, like a giant, sort of like posed seductively almost, and he flies towards it. Like it feels like the 60s psychedelia is is coming home to roost which i really loved even though it's you know on the verge of the 80s when that stuff would be kind of uh hoisted out by the culture and then he mind melds with he tries to mind meld with uh the viger sentience and he gets basically fucked up from doing so and that was kind of cool to see spock try and do something on that large of a scale and fail to add like dramatic tension to let you know that there's there's another way out of this like it's not just spock's gonna get the intel and this this is all gonna be over soon like they gotta come up with something else i'm still um kind of blown away by the uh, by the visual effects in th- throughout that entire sequence i like just i don't understand quite how they managed to get that scale um and even when you watch it at like on a tv at home um the the depth and the scale of the effects and all of the environments and and all of that it's just it it, it blows my mind and like did did you guys figure out some trivia as to how they did it? Because I don't. I don't know how they did it. No, I, I don't. And it really, again, having recently seen 2001 with special effects, also by Douglas Trumbull, I really was watching that movie and going, this is on the biggest screen I could watch it on. Everything looks as good as if they made it today. Like, there's barely a, even a tiny moment of out-of-place special effects. And it's the same thing with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Like, it really does... Like, there's a couple little things where you can see some, like, uh, compositing or superimposing issues, but most of it is just, like... It holds up. If they did this now, I'd be... Yeah, it holds up. It really does. How are they doing this? 
I don't know. Uh, and uh, it's and again, it's it's the type of thing where if you, of course, if you get the opportunity to see it on the big screen, it, it has a much greater impact. And uh, it's kind of like with uh, like when you were talking about the uh, the tantric fly around of the Enterprise there, Peter, um, that's the type of scene that it you don't you can appreciate it. But when you see it on the big screen, and I imagine being a Star Trek fan back in 1979, being a fan of the show and then being able to see the Enterprise be like, you know, 30 or 40 feet wide uh, and to have it so amazingly realized and, and in such detail, like that's that's the appeal of that scene. It's because on paper, it's or when you hear it described, it's like, ugh, they're flying around a ship for five minutes. But that it's all about that that spectacle and 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 the scale of everything because that movie is huge. Every shot in it is just absolutely yeah. massive when it gets outside of the inside of the ship. It's yeah, so if you, and if you if you look at the movies that he did the special effects for, like contribute in some way. I mean, it's not that many, and each one of them holds up as like. Like, uh, Silent Running, I think, still looks really good. Obviously, 2001. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that's about it. Uh, and those are all – and then, of course, Tree of Life, which everyone was in awe of the special effects sequence, uh, the creation of the universe sequence. And that, in 2011, like, you really have this person who made these amazing special effects that I just – I don't think people – in in a industry that's like built around taking the 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 techniques and and building off them and stealing them, it feels like whatever he is doing. I don't know if he's working like closing all the doors and working in a secret laboratory, but it still feels unique, uh, even uh, fifty years after his first movie. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned Silent Running earlier, and it's it's funny that he worked on that as well because it, it gave me. A I believe he directed sort of- it. Yeah, he directed it. Yeah. It gave me a similar sort of feel where uh, 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 he's interested in the mechanics of how the fuck you would survive in space. Um, and, you know, some of it is artistic. Like the Enterprise is, was designed a little bit for, you know, look and style. But um, he's also he's also interested in like, yeah, this is a real object in space that would require an immense amount of resources. Uh, so let's. What else didn't we get a chance to mention? Obviously, it's a it's a hundred and thirty minute movie, so I'm sure there's a lot we're going to miss. The only thing that I had, I think we may have actually got to to most of the stuff. I just, I guess, I really want to underline why I love the idea of searching for the creator, searching for the creator, and and kind of also to kind of mention something that Bruce you said. Uh, on our break, that this Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry was a very famous atheist and a humanist, and a lot of Star Trek uh, episodes and movies are kind of about taking the idea of a creator and uh, shrinking it down to size, that there is no omnipotent being that, and if you're looking for that omnipotent being, it doesn't exist. We're going to see that, Peter, in more than one of these movies, and this, the fact that it's kind of present in in this movie where you have this immense, almost planet-sized, uh, unknowable machine that other people would view as a god. You could see a version of this where a society were to meet V'ger and if he doesn't destroy them, them thinking that this is like god or a creator. And he is instead – he is looking for his creator, which is just like literally the people of the 1970s. And when he discovers that 
it's just us meat bags. He's extremely disappointed. Actually, uh, sorry, Aaron, uh, did we mention the episode from the second season of Star Trek uh, that has a very similar plot to the motion picture? Was that we mentioned? Did, we did not. No. And we didn't watch it. Because we were focusing on the level setting episodes. Right, of course. So I don't remember what the name of that episode is. but the, 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 It's the Space Amoeba one that you're thinking of, right? No, it's not the Space Amoeba. Uh, Nomad. Oh, the Immunity uh, Syndrome. That's what uh, you're thinking of, right? No, it's uh, Nomad. <laughs> is, is the, it's, it's this little robot, and it basically is a miniature V'ger. It's a, it's like a, a robot that is sent out into space. It's like a probe and then it's programming gets mixed around and then it basically makes its way back through the galaxy towards earth. And it's a, its mission is to destroy all imperfect life. Oh, the changeling. The changeling. That's it. Um, uh, and it's it's interesting because I kind of thought that that might be one of the episodes that you would suggest as a watch to sort of lead into this because the, the, the plot of it is so similar to the motion picture. I think if, if I had chosen an episode that was like he'd already had his uh, – I like talking about Peter like he's not here. <laughs> if, if, if that one weird guy already had a frame of reference, that would have definitely been the episode I would have paired up with it. Yeah. Um, but – it felt like that I, did, I understood that why yeah, it is. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, as a postscript, it would be interesting to to watch the change link, Peter, and discuss it. Yeah, you can come back I, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, definitely will. Um, we'll throw this episode in the trash. I'll delete my track right now, and then we'll redo it later. No worries. Yeah, because really, you didn't have all the knowledge, so everything you've said is pretty worthless. I mean. <laughs> um, Even with the knowledge, it's going to be pretty worthless. So. Um, um, but yeah, I, I I don't really have any other I don't really have any other scenes. I really really do like the fact that it all kind of, it brings multiple character arcs together. That Viger and Spock share sort of an existential crisis. That Viger is this like pure rationality thing, and Spock is trying to become a purely I guess he was you know lost at sea after he he ended the show. Um, he's trying to be, you know, reconnect with his culture and become a purely rational being. And at the end, he realizes like what the compromise of his character actually. Yeah, he kind of, in some way, almost realizes that he's not a full person. He's like, he instead is like uh, the flip side of the coin to McCoy that needs to inform another full person. Uh, that's a very reductive way to look at it, but that is kind of how their uh, their triumvirate relationship works. And it's interesting when you were talking about Kirk being the main character with an arc throughout uh, the, the films, uh, Aaron, because Spock very much has a very he he has a very compelling arc throughout these films as well. Um, and of course, I don't want to you know get into it too much with 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 since Peter's about to watch these movies, but um, pay particular attention to how Spock kind of develops through throughout the films, because I think you'll find his characterization in this film <clears throat> is is it's is put into a very point. yeah 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 and it's really put into a satisfying context when you watch through the series and you see what happens to him throughout the films. That's a very good point. Like those two definitely have the arcs. I think the difference when I'm looking at it that way is that and 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 in the same way I think the. Um, it's, it's Picard and Data that kind of end up being the main characters of all the Next Generation movies. Um, and they, very similarly, I think, I, I think the difference is, is that Kirk is clearly the motivating factors in a lot of the the plot developments that occur. 
and obviously, but you, you're 100% right. Spock is a very satisfying arc um, into finding out who he who he is as a person, where Kirk knows who he is and is trying to kind of make the universe and Starfleet and everyone else reckon with who he is. Spock kind of figures out who he is. Yeah. Um, I got nothing to say because I haven't seen the stuff. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> We're going to need like eight recap episodes to like revisit some of these <laughs> movies with some with some better uh, some better context. But that I mean, Peter, I, I, I had this down as I think my, my thesis last week was I think the ones that everyone likes and everyone agrees are great. You're going to like because they're just really good movies. Um and my thesis was that the ones where there's a mixed reaction on, like this, like maybe Star Trek 3, like some of the next-gen stuff, I thought you were going to fucking hate. <laughs> um, I really did. Because, again, you can, I think you can watch this movie and go, who the fuck are all these people? Why am I watching a 10-minute scene of the Enterprise? Why is there such a big buildup for every character getting back together? Yeah, thank like, you for making me watch the show a little bit because I would have hated this movie otherwise. And I, I wasn't sure even with that knowledge. Because, again, I didn't know what you were going to think of the show either. Because this show is great. But I I and probably Bruce as well, like, I can't judge Star Trek, especially the original series in The Next Generation, through any sort of critical lens. Like, Oh, it's just, impossible, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can do it to Discovery. I can do it to Voyager and Enterprise and Deep Space Nine. But, like, those two are just, like, a part of who I am in a very weird way. So... It, I get a warm feeling thinking about Star Trek, so I'm not the best person to tell you um, what what a what a whether you're going to enjoy it or not. So I'm really glad you did. That's a, this is a promising start. If you found a lot to appreciate of Star Trek: The Motion Picture, I think of where we're headed, especially in the next episode. Uh, but Bruce, any other things you want to call out before we kind of wrap this one up? I don't think so. Um, I kind of and when I when this whole idea of doing this podcast and me participating in the episode for the motion picture was uh, was what I knew that was going to happen. I, I sort of had some ideas that I wanted to express, and I think I got them out. So, um, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad you had fun. I hope that you join us on We Love to Watch sometime as well, or um, uh, or maybe you, I kind of, you know, the, the thing about this this series is that when we get done with the 13 movies, there's a lot of possibilities if we want to do occasional one-offs as well. Maybe revisiting some of the classic episodes that didn't meet with the kind of criteria or just revisiting some of the movies with more context. Um, you know, it's one of those things that we can end after 13 episodes or I'm sure we could find a way to continue. So, if we do, uh, I hope you end up back on and I, if not, I hope you end up back on our other podcast this was great having you oh well, yes, thank you class, um man. thank you so much for coming up oh it was great thank you so much anything you have to promote uh who me no not really <laughs> um i yeah there's i don't have any time to create something to promote i'm just you know it's just yeah no, I'm, I'm good. I'm all set. Okay. Uh, so, with that, next week or next two weeks, we, we don't really know the cadence of um, we're going to try to record a couple and then release them. Uh, we don't want to go a year between uh, the first movie and the last movie, but uh, we're about to get into our uh, – uh, when we're recording this, our horror movie binge. So, uh, we may try to get one more in before, before that. So, I don't know when this is coming out, but the next episode you will hear will be – uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan 
Uh, the episode that we're going to preface that with is Space Seed, which is not going to be a shock to anyone listening that knows Star Trek. Uh, it's an episode of the original series featuring Khan. Uh, so this oh, this really so the, the 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 person that's so mad. Do we get to find out why he's so ornery? In you this do episode? very much so. We get to see uh, him get real cheesed off, huh? He, I would say, <laughs> I don't know. If, would you call it an anger or maybe a? I don't know. I'd call it a wrath. I think I feel comfortable with the name that the 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 mood they've selected. Hell yeah, Nicholas Meyer. Yeah, Nicholas Meyer knows what he's doing. So you know, he's he's definitely picking up on the right thread. So yeah, and uh, just the idea of making a sequel to, uh, and I remember the making of this, which we'll talk about next week. He literally just watched all the episodes to find something that would connect with fans more. To literally do a sequel uh, to one of the episodes, and he definitely stumbled upon the right one. This is kind of considered the default best Star Trek movie by everyone. Um, That's what I've heard. I mean, you've basically seen it because you've seen Into Darkness, and that's essentially the same thing. Oh, so it sucks? <laughs> oh, God. No. That's a joke. It's a very mean joke. But Ricardo Montalban is in Wrath of Khan. Does that mean they go to Fantasy Island on this episode? He, he's Khan. Yes. He's oh, Khan, okay. Peter. He's Khan? Yeah. We get to see Ricardo Montalban all cheesed off? <laughs> Hold on. Did you honestly not know that he was Khan? Why would it? Why would I know? I don't. Know I don't know. He's on the Star poster. Why would I know who the fucking okay. cast decisions I, are. I don't know. It just so Peter. Uh, Peter, I just. I just need to. I need to say this. Okay, you've seen Into Darkness, and you had the appropriate reaction to it. You did. You disliked it. Yes. Yeah, it was a bad movie. Not good. So watching the Wrath of Khan, um, I if. It will make you hate Into Darkness <laughs> That's even what I said more. Last week, can't, one can't of the wait one to of the reasons reason to lower my star rating. One of the reasons that we decided to do the the three J.J. Uh, Abrams universe movies is because when I realized he didn't even know how the Wrath of Khan connected to it, I'm like, holy shit, you need to – I said the exact same thing last week. Like, you need to watch it with a renewed hate as to why it get, misses all the points. Yeah, it's it's a Kurtzman and Orsi just watched Wrath of Khan on a couple of episodes in a drunken stupor one weekend and hammered out the screenplay. Oh, and uh, uh, 9-11 footage. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And they also really liked RoboCop 2, strangely enough. Like, I like RoboCop 2, but uh, they Orky yeah. and Kurtzman did not like one because they're bad people. So they liked two and wanted Peter Weller in it. Um, but two's kind of good. <laughs> But they still chose wrong. Anyway, um, yeah, so we're very excited to talk about uh, Star Trek Two uh, and, and Space Robocop 2. And, and RoboCop Two. <laughs> um, well, if we do RoboCop Two on uh, We Love to Watch, I guess we know who needs to be the guest. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, and I think if I, I forget if I mentioned this on the break uh, or not, but I think the format for the movies going forward will be one. Possibly two episodes that inform the movie in some way, um, and then another three episodes to set the stage for the series when we get into Star Trek Generation. So uh, each week we'll be announcing the episode we'll be doing as well, uh, so that if you want to follow along and rewatch uh, them, because a lot of them are, are very – I've seen them, but it's been 10 or even 15 or 20 years in some cases. I am old. It, it may be – I, it may be 25 years in some cases, I am realizing, and that is very disappointing to have uh, a realization at the end of the podcast that I, I have seen some of these Star Trek episodes 25 years ago, and I am going to die soon. Anyway, uh, 
I'm, I'm going to be like Kirk as we go through the podcast, uh, recognizing my own mortality and fighting against it desperately. I think with that, uh, live long and prosper. Is that how you want to end these, Peter? Do you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that seems good. Can you do the hand separation on Mike? Uh, is that do I do the shocker? What is the hand separation? <laughs> no, I know what the hand separation is, right? It's it's between the middle finger and the ring finger. You got it. Can you do it on Mike? Demonstrate for us. Here, can you hear that? That was pretty good for your first time, I assume. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it's like a little fish. If you make it like kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yep. cool. we're all picturing it and we'll picture it in our dreams tonight <laughs> good night everyone <laughs> good night and good Star Trek <laughs>